Welcome to Embracing Death. I'm your host, Julia. Join me each week as I have a conversation about mortality with someone closest to it. This week, I had the immense pleasure of interviewing Iris Gottlieb. Iris works as an author and illustrator, and when I discovered Iris's book, Everything is Temporary, I knew I had to have Iris on the show as a guest. Everything is Temporary is an illustrated contemplation on how death shapes our lives, and I can't wait for you to hear a little bit more about Iris and Iris's inspiration for the book. I'm Iris Gottlieb, and I am an author and illustrator who has written a couple books and illustrated for a lot of different things. Current interest is death and trash. Iris, I love both of those topics. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Uh, when I was kind of led to your illustrated contemplations of everything is temporary, I immediately ordered it and I have been using it uh, to read, you know, every morning when I get up and I'm kind of doing my morning waking up kind of ritual, I've been reading a few pages. And so I got through it. And then I've gone back through and kind of bookmarked some of my favorite contemplations. And I, I just can't wait to hear about how you kind of found this topic, and how it led you to the on the journey to creating this really, really beautiful piece of literature and art. So tell me a little bit about your background and how it led you to creating the book Everything is Temporary. I have been interested in death since I was a child. My most memorable instances of relating to death were around my animals. You know, I had gerbils and guinea pigs and dogs and found found a dead fish on the beach when I was little and dragged it around and named it Sleepy. <laughs> um, so I've always had a, you know, emotional and scientific interest in death. My college thesis was about our relationship to death and decay and how, you know, over over time, at least in European cultures, we started to shy away from acknowledging death and looking at it, but that, you know, it, it happens and there is a strong benefit to acknowledging that. And I've been wanting to write this book for about seven years now. And I think that a, a, a lot of factors have gone into why it's happening now. And I think, honestly, COVID has had an impact on the public desire to, to talk about it more. Yeah, the, the idea has been there for a long time. And I was finally able to make it happen. I do think that COVID being such a huge part in our society for so long, it kind of forced the hand. It forced people to now realize that death isn't just something that happens to granny and you spend three days, you know, planning the funeral and then you don't talk about it anymore. And I, I'm appreciative of that because I think not talking about death and dying and the one thing that all life experiences is death. So to have kind of that come out of something so horrible is almost kind of a relief where, you know, for years, we no one talks about it. And it creates this intense anxiety, which is what's led me to this podcast, because I had this intense fear of death and of what happened, of the uncertainty, of just the the shunning away from talking about it. And so creating this space where people can talk about it freely and create a place where people can listen to it without that fear has been really important to, you know, myself included. And um, I just think it's really special that you created it, not just a book, because it gives you something. There's also a lot of illustrated um, parts to it that I think are really beautiful. So I want to talk a little bit about how you wrote the book the way you did and you illustrated it yourself, correct? Yeah. 
So how did it how did it come the words and the pictures or together? Um, a little bit of both. Uh, I didn't have I, I kind of did it in bits and pieces that weren't in any sort of linear and like it's not super linear, but I think there is an arc from fear to acceptance with a lot of stuff in between. So I had some ideas that like then I kind of needed to fill in the gaps and there were certain concepts that were interesting to me of death rituals of other cultures and practices, as well as just, you know, I, I mean, I have fear about it. And writing this book kind of made that better. At the t- time that I was writing this, my dog was dying, my dog of 13 years, who, you know, that's a really hard thing. And I actually have not lost any close human beings. But the process of having this animal who was my companion through like some of my worst years and who kept me alive in a lot of ways um when I was struggling to to have that and be like it is my I have to decide when this being dies and I you know I not only have to grieve the loss of this but I have to be in charge of making it happen and so there was a lot of like debate within myself of quality of life and like what makes it okay to be time to die and her being like she doesn't know like she's she doesn't know that I have to make this decision and once she dies she doesn't know I mean who knows maybe she does maybe she's I had a conversation in which like several people were like yeah we don't believe in heaven but there's definitely a dog heaven (laughs) like we're all playing there so that process during this book I think was very illuminating of my own process of like fear and deep sadness and acceptance that you know she was suffering people and beings shouldn't have to suffer for the sake of being alive longer that's not you know you're technically alive but it's not living and it's not happy and so I think during that I learned a lot about my own stuff and imagine that that process is quite similar to experiencing the death of human beings. And it was also pretty isolated, you know, I think, which is probably true for a lot of people that experience human deaths of like, you have this very specific relationship. No one has the same relationship with anybody that anyone else does. And so, you know, it's like, it's like a collective experience of most people have experienced death in some capacity, but will never be in your experience in it. Absolutely. I, I think that what a lot of the things you're saying really hit home because I, I was responsible for euthanizing my cat last year and the guilt of having to be the one to kind of allow your pet that, you know, a choice that they can't make for themselves. Um, in a ways, like, you know, our pets do choose when like my cat had stopped eating and he kind of told me like, I'm ready to go. So let's do this together. Um, But also the isolating factor of, you know, whatever you're going through in life, not only with the loss, but nobody is experiencing your experience the way you are and vice versa, just like you're not experiencing theirs. So I think in the world, there's so much space for divisive and unrelatability, but there is something that we all can relate to is that we go through it. Now, how we go through it and how exactly we experience it is different. But I, I like how when you created this book, it gives 
so many opportunities for people to relate to each other and kind of connect instead of isolate because there's there's a page in here that everyone can relate to everyone on at one point. Um, so if you don't mind, I would like to kind of pull up some of my favorite pages and maybe we can talk a little bit about a little bit more about um, the the story behind it or, or kind of your beliefs behind it. Okay, so we'll kind of start in the beginning. Um, my This one is like one of my favorite pages because it gives you a sense of just power. It says, from the second after you were born onward, there will never be a time in which you don't exist. And a lot of times when we think about the fear and life and death, we don't think about that the minute you were created, you now are going to exist in some capacity forever. And I think that's really humbling and really kind of special to know that although we are one in a tr trillions of people spinning on this rock in this outer space, you know, you are an individual and to kind of remember that, you know, your existence will never not be here. Yeah. It really, uh, <laughs> really kind of trips me out to be like, Oh my God, like I just didn't exist before. There was a point at which like, you know, every, every, uh, circumstance had to be very specific for me to be alive. And there's also part of the book that is talking about our like deep impulse to need to be remembered and what that involves, which sometimes is like really over the top. And I think there's a lot of fear about wanting to exist forever and not wanting to be temporary, but you know, I won't be remembered in a million years and that is fine. But even in a million years, even if not a single living being knows your name, your matter, your physical existence, your presence, your consciousness existed. So the memory of that, even if no one has it is still there, which you know, in a way is comforting because even if nobody knows or no one, there's no humans left on the planet in a hundred million years or whatever the thing is, we still existed. Yeah. I think it's just really cool that no matter what for the rest of forever, as long as time is existing in whatever capacity you think if it's linear or not, you're existing now. And that means you always will in a way because you did. And even if I'm scattered amongst a million living things, you know, that was me. You're still here. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we'll move on to some other pages. I've got so many here. I, uh, okay. This is one about the, the time, which you just kind of talked about. It says time steadily moves and carries us along until our life is over and it keeps going. So it's kind of like, you know, even though we come and go and we're just kind of a little blip on the, the spectrum of time and, and the magnitude of, of existing, you know, time keeps going. And I think it's comforting to know that every person that's ever lived and is going to live and is living will die, has died, or is going to die. And we're all just a little blip. And that's, that's something that we can relate to. What do you think about that page? I think that it is a hard concept to accept that like 99.9% .9 of life will continue on as normal once we're gone. And uh, like, I just took a trip <clears throat> for two weeks. And I came back and I'm like, well, everything is normal. Like, I felt like I entered this wormhole of like leaving and coming back and like people are still just living their normal lives. And that's such a tiny example, but a lot happened to me on this trip that just like is totally unrelated to this thing. And 
I think it also goes in line with, you know, the whole thing that like people move on from deaths like that has to happen and people develop new relationships or people, you know, start to forget you in these certain ways. Like, you know, memories fade, things that are sentimental go away and that's hard but also you know a necessary part of people being able to grieve is letting go of the people they lose in some capacity and it's normal just like we said you know there's people that died 200 years ago that nobody remembers nobody knows anything about them it doesn't negate their existence but that's natural and it's supposed to happen we're not supposed to be remembered forever because if we were then you know, I don't know what that would mean, but I just feel like we're we're supposed to become a distant memory that no one knows. I, I yeah. And I so hope of, that when I'm dead, I'm not going to be hung up on the fact that people aren't going to remember me in a thousand years. Yeah, from people that I I've interviewed, I've interviewed um, some mediums, some people with near death experiences who have kind of came into contact with souls or consciousnesses or energies that they believe are you know from the other side. A lot of times, the energy that they're coming into contact. They have no like anger, no resentment. They don't care about what's happening back here in this realm. The only thing that they talk about is love and just exuding that love and sharing that love. It's not about like, be kind to your brother or why didn't you bury me this way? Or why wasn't I cremated? Or why weren't you better to me? It's all just love. And so, you know, I don't think they're, these energies and these life forces are concerned about being remembered at all. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I had a comforting just like moment a couple of years ago where I was like, I'm not going to care when I'm dead. Like there's so much buildup to this scary, scary thing. But then once it's happened, it's like, okay, it's done. And it's just one little moment of your of your existence. It's a fraction of a second of from, from life to death. But yet it's sometimes we spend so much energy on that one little moment that we forget like we're in the living part of it. So <laughs> we'll move on to... Uh, the grief section. Um, this page was really important to me as someone who is still grieving the loss of two of my pets, both of which I lost last year. Um, it says grieving can be filled with sorrow, yet it simultaneously ushers us towards deeper understandings of tempora- temporality and our lack of control. And I think control is one of the biggest things is why we foster that fear about death is because we're not in control of when and how it happens and that it happens. Which is terrifying (laughs) you know in some ways it's like a a lucky thing to just die suddenly and quietly and with no pain and in some ways it's very tragic to not be able to say goodbye and both are blessings and curses at the same time and you don't get to choose yeah nope (laughs) I I sometimes ask myself which one I would rather have. And I I want one where, so this is why every time I leave the house or I hang up the phone, I always make sure to tell the people that I care about, that I love them. I try to never hold on to anger and resentment because, you know, the time I leave the house, I can be struck by lightning. And so I hope that mine is swift and painless, but also I had enough time to like remind the people I care about um, because I think perseverating on knowing I'm going to die and giving putting like a prognosis on that would be it would be too hard for me like I don't know if I want to know but I also want to know so I can prepare so it's yeah it's impossible to have both 
Okay, so we're going to move on. This says, when death becomes isolated and shut away, it becomes invisible, easy to ignore. In these settings, our agency over our lives and deaths is often taken away. It is common to perform drastic medical procedures to keep dying people alive, often to the detriment of their own life. As an ER nurse, I see this every day. I see the 95-year-old person coming in with a stroke or a heart attack, and we do everything to keep them alive for what? You know, a few more months, a few more years of probably a painful and exhausting existence. When we, Why do you think that we, as humans, focus on length of life as opposed to quality of life? My guess when it comes to those kinds of things is that it's the people around them that want it and not them. I think so many people who are sick or old are like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I'm tired, but it's family who just like cannot accept that there's a choice that can be made that would be the end. And I think a lot of times in life, we value quantity over quality. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not well enough versed on other cultures' beliefs about longevity versus quality. Um, but I think that we are just, I think it's all fear-based. Like we don't, we, we are very afraid of dealing with what comes after somebody dies to the point where we don't want it to happen. Yeah. I also think that because we know we have time left, like I know that I'm young and healthy and the odds of me dying from something sudden are, you know, astronomically low. And to lose someone like my mom, I know that I have so much more time. And so selfishly, I want her to be a part of that. So because, you know, right now my mom's getting older and I'm getting older. I'm now in my early to mid 30s now and so my mom is is reaching that later stage of her life and to to realize that you know any day something could happen or something could develop or things could always go a different direction I selfishly keep telling myself like I'm not ready for her to face those things yet and because I know that I have hopefully 30 40 50 years left I'm hoping that she'll be there for as many of those as possible. And so I think it is a selfish, not saying that everyone who doesn't want their family member to die is selfish, but I do think it comes down to knowing that you have so much time left and you want them to be a part of it. And for us, we have the opportunity with medical advances and technology to really just hold people against their own will, so to speak. Yeah, it's like very imprisoning to be like, we just aren't going to let you die. Like you can stop eating. We'll put a tube in your nose. Which is like, that is not quality of life. And according you know, to the next page that I also flagged, it says we can be put on a position of being kept alive by machines and medications. And we can be drawn to the notion that longevity of life is more important than quality, which is what we've just been talking about. How I interviewed a guest who was a death investigator. And he now is a holistic shaman who works with um, shaman from Central and South American, um, you know, different indigenous folk that live there. And he met with a um, shaman in Central America. I'm not exactly sure of where, so I don't want to say anything and misquote him. But he talked with the shaman and the shaman says, you might live to 80, but you are not, We and we die at 60, but we are living longer lives. And it, 
this has sat with me ever since then is that we might live to 85, but we're not living until 85. We're being kept alive. Um, the minute you can't care for yourself or have, you know, the ability to, you know, love the life that you're in, are you really living? And that just goes to show that Western medicine has done nothing, but it, it has saved lives, but it's also prolonging the inevitable, which to me is just kind of sad. I read um, the book, uh, Being Mortal, which I'm not sure if you've read it. It's really, he's a, a surgeon or a neuroscientist. I'm not sure. Atul Gawande is the author. I'm not positive if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but he comes from a background of like, do anything you can to save a life and just started witnessing young people old people that are going through like such drastic measures of you know experimental chemo or like trials or surgery that yeah end up causing more pain and he talks about all these different ways of how messed up nursing homes can be in terms of just a complete lack of joy for these residents and talks about this thing that I, I have thought of since of this specific retirement home in which everybody seemed pretty depressed. Everyone was on a lot of medications and they were previously allowed to have, I think one cat and one dog for the entire residence, which I think was fairly big. And this guy came in and was like, Nope, I'm changing everything. And every resident had live plants in their room. Every resident had a bird that they took care of. There were several dogs and cats and the amount of mobility, the amount of medications, like I think the medications were cut in half. People who hadn't walked started walking because they wanted to walk the dog and having a reason and a life to take care of themselves was so enriching. And I think they're just ways that like we, and he was also like, if, if people want, we, we're so afraid of like old people falling is like a big one that he was talking about, or like, you're not allowed to drink or eat ice cream or these things that we deem unhealthy or unsafe. And he's like, if it brings joy to walk and they die because they fall, like that is such a more autonomous choice of what they're, what's going to bring happiness. If you want to smoke a pack of day and that is what's going to kill you, do it like there's no reason to limit joy for the sake of like technically keeping someone safe especially when they're at the stage of their lives where they are they are headed towards home base you know I, I'm not a great sports person I don't watch sports but I like to reference them but at the end of your life if the one thing that you enjoy that's not hurting other people I'm not saying you know you know, we don't want to do that. But if, if the one thing that you find joy in is having a glass of wine and a, and a cigarette, what what's the harm? Because you're going to kill yourself? Well, you're already dying. And yeah. I'm not going to eat a vegetable for the last year of my life. I'm only eating junk food. <laughs> Mac and cheese, Velveeta shells and cheese. I don't know why. All these years, I'm just obsessed with it. Just the fake cheese. But yeah, I I, I don't understand why we've created this idea that I do think there are some elderly folks and I've, I've seen them where they're 85 years old. And when I ask them when we're triaging them into the emergency department, you know, would you like us to do everything? 
And they say yes, but I also think that they don't know what everything is. We don't have that education where we talk about how we, what, what kind of pain and trauma goes through a human body when we do CPR, when we intubate, when we are slamming their body filled with um, blood pressure stabilizing medications that literally cuts off blood flow to your fingers, your toes, your, 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 your blood, just it's very traumatizing. And so I think the lack of education of what actually happens when we attempt to do every life-saving measure is and it just creates people just think oh well cpr is going to save me and i'm going to come back and be normal but they don't realize that every rib in their chest has broken off of their sternum and now yep. they have a year's worth of respiratory recovery that they'll probably never experience anyway yeah, yeah cpr and is gnarly <laughs> it, as someone who's done it multiple times i have never done it without breaking ribs yeah. ever on a big 300 pound man on a little 80 pound person every single time and it's it's traumatizing for me i can only imagine what it's like for the person that's you know going to wake up hopefully on the other end if they wake up the next thing we'll share i think i have this page and two more um we often don't talk about what we want from life in the context of death and efforts to prolong life we have do not resuscitate orders and medical directives, things outlining what we don't want done to our bodies, but we fail to discuss what things are necessary to have for life to feel alive. Just as you were saying, we talk about what we don't want, but we don't talk about wanting a dog or a fresh plant or a bird to care for to kind of feel alive. And you were saying that in these, in these um, skilled nursing facilities that are people really alive when they have no purpose, they have no tasks, no goals, bingo night on Tuesday is really the only thing they have to live for. Is that really a living? Yeah. In that same book, there is a part that he talks about that I, that is funny. Like it's, it's a humorous and uh, enlightening look into what that conversation can look like. This, this woman, her father was getting surgery. I think he was elderly, but maybe not ancient and before the surgery she was like okay if this surgery is relatively high risk if you come out on the other side what are the things that feel necessary to make it worth it and he was like i want to be able to watch baseball and i want to be able to eat chocolate ice cream i'm pretty sure that that was it and she was like that is such a lower bar than i would have thought but this is what he wants and now i know that his life is that he's content enough if he has those things. I mean, to be determined if he actually is. But I think that we guess for other people what's worth it and are probably wrong a lot of the time. Because for me, I'm like, oh my God, that would be so unfulfilling. But for this guy, it's like, I just want I just want to watch sports and I want to eat ice cream. His bar is pretty low, which is good to know because I think mine would be much higher than that. Yeah. Um, and so I think these conversations of being like, well, what what's worth it? You know? And when, it, like, going back to the dog thing, like, witnessing my dog starting to fall or, like, being caught in it, I'm like, do you want this? Like, th this does not seem enjoyable to you. Like, we're not having a good time here. And I'm just going to put this assumption on this being. But I think, and it was a big thing of being like, how do you judge happiness or contentment in a life and it's complicated without projecting your own 
thoughts yeah. and beliefs. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges with not knowing what our loved ones, our family members, or people that were responsible or will be responsible for making those decisions in the end. We project what we think we would want in that situation. And that's why it's so important to start having these conversations. In my family, we've always said, if I cannot go to the, if I can't wipe my own butt, pretty much, essentially, then I don't want I don't want to live. And that's like the one thing we all agree. Like, because if, if, and I know there's times at the end of life where you do require assistance, but it's one of those things that if, if I'm going through a a big accident or something bad happens to me, if my progress is that I can't take care of myself essentially, like in the very basics of what I need, then I don't, I don't deem that worth it for me, which, you know, is a, is a hard conversation because you could have, a quality of life that's much lower but it's if it's not what you want then you have to share those wishes i think there's also like specifically around things with asking for help there's like, like a lot of shame and vulnerability and embarrassment to be like i can't even do i have to have somebody like help me and undress me and like, like these things that i think can be pretty uh demoralizing and why are they demoralizing because our society has forced us to believe that having someone help you wipe your butt is is hum- like humiliating which it's not it's human so maybe that's a conversation we'll have because as someone who's who's cleaned up many people have dressed and undressed and assisted people with you know, brushing their teeth and a lot of people when i'm helping them to the bathroom and they're like oh i'm so sorry that you have to be here and i just think i've done this a thousand times i'll do this a thousand more and it's and i always tell people it's human and i think they get a little bit of comfort knowing that i'm not they're not the first person i've you know, been around when they have to go to the bathroom and I'm helping them. And just to kind of let them know that it's all part of being humans that are now living to an older age. Yeah. And to be like, okay, I have this thing that I need help with, but I'm still having really enriching conversations with my friends and my family. I'm like, if I can't get enjoyment from the people that I love, that's when it is done. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I, I might feel like I'm going crazy if I can't be mobile or whatever, but I'm like, those things are not necessarily things that would deem my life unlivable. But if I can't, you know, if I have like severe dementia or Alzheimer's or like these things that really inhibit communication or like connecting with people, then that to me feels like, all right, that's, that's my deal breaker right there. That's what I say to my family. I say, if I can't communicate effectively or at all, and you can't communicate with me effectively or at all, because I think that's part of being like the cognitively developed and, you know, evolved beings that we are is that we've surpassed the, the, the mammalistic kind of thing so now we have this emotional spiritual communicative connection with people and i think that's what really makes us humans is that we have a kind of a deeper broader ability to connect with others and that's where i think my boundary would be is if i can't receive connection or give connection so we'll we'll touch base on the last couple things i have this one was really i think it's the last page actually um the second to last page and it says dying is not failing Death is sorrowful and horrible and loving and natural and normal. We get to be here for our lives. We are allowed to breathe and find joy and pain and love. And those things are the gift we are given with the knowledge that at the end of it, we will die. Do you think that knowing that we're going to die is why is makes living that much better? Yeah, I have these, if I go in and out of like, 
shit, man, I don't want to, I don't want to die. And it, you know, it's like, you know, our focus on productivity or whatever to be this concept of wasting time, which I don't totally believe in, but sometimes feel. Um, So I think that there's that pressure of being like, I have to spend every moment well, because I know that I'm going to die. And then there's this other part of me that's like, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this podcast, but (laughs) (laughs) but I'm like, fuck (laughs) it, man. I'm just going to like do what I want. Like if I'm going to die, I might as well have fun. And I am not a risk risk taker. So oftentimes that does not pan out to be anything, but (laughs) I think it's Mm -hmm. a good motivator to be like, spend it how you want to spend it. Like, don't be afraid of, like your time is limited and it's also long at the same time. Like I'm thinking about doing something. I'm thinking about going somewhere for six months and it's scary. And it's like, I would miss my friends and all these things, but I'm like, I'm 33, six months in the span of what, probably six years based on my grandma's is nothing. And if it's going to feel good, I should just do it. And obviously not everyone and I would argue most people do not have the privilege to seek out joy as their main spending of life and that really sucks and I think about that and that I'm in a really privileged position to have a lot of flexibility in how I spend my time and be able to channel my fear of death into finding a good life and our society is not set up for that. It's like you work yourself to death. You can't spend your time doing what you love. And I think that's a hard, uh, it's a hard ask in some ways to just be like, just find joy when I'm like, not everyone can do that. But I do think that knowing that I'm going to die is both very paralyzing in moments am I spending this well? Or just like, I've recently been having this thing of like, oh my God, like every minute that has ever happened to me and every moment that is happening right now is done. Like I'm only moving forward and every minute is closer to dying. And that can really send me into a freak out, but there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. I am. I constantly have this. This is my like intrusive thought is that I'm being catapulted towards a target and the target is death and it's like the closer I get the bigger the target is and I can see it and I can do nothing about it like unfortunately for us time does go linearly for our consciousness and our existence I don't know how time actually exists because if you look into like quantum stuff it's literally it's anxiety driving (laughs) but I keep thinking yeah like like a trillion versions of us in like a million different universes yeah but that's not comforting to me because I'm in this one (laughs) so other Julia's on the other ones and maybe she's a little less (laughs) anxious but this one is anxious and focused on death and I think the the we're going to just say Western culture, like the United States and the way things are here, is that you have to live every moment well, live life to the fullest. And I spent years, you know, living life to the fullest. And I'm telling you, I'm exhausted. I want to live life to the to the what I am and where I'm at in the moment. And that means 
right now is sitting on my couch, enjoying TV, drinking coffee, not out living in the woods for six months with a tent and seeing the most beautiful, stunning mountains in the United States. It is being where I am now, doing gentle yoga, connecting with my friends and family. And I can't look back at the moments that were wasted because they existed and it's already over. And I can't look to the future and say, live life fully because it's exhausting. So <laughs> you just have to be where you are. Absolutely. So um, we're kind of rounding out here. I'm going to ask you, um, what do you think happens when we die with our consciousness? Or where do we go? Do we go anywhere? Or what are your thoughts? Well, I do believe in ghosts, which really puts a wrench in my confusion about what happens. I certainly don't believe in God in the sense of like, there's, to me, there's no guy sitting on another planet letting me in or out. And if it is, I'm definitely going to hell for a lot of reasons. But I'm like, all the, all the fun people are going to be there, you know. Um, <laughs> but ah, the ghost the ghost thing, really, I'm like, I don't know. I don't think that, I think that we go into the ground. I think that we get eaten. That's fine. But I do think that we're floating around somewhere. I have had, I have not had a ghost experience. I had somebody that I have never met, but I my one of my ex's best friends had died i never met him um but i had a dream where he was there and it was very much like this is him he's introducing himself to me i was like follow i was kind of like shadowing him on the last day of his life and i was like i'm seeing his mannerisms i'm doing all these things like clearly i cannot make this up it was almost like I'm introducing myself as the best friend of your partner. And I was like, okay, I like, he is somewhere doing this. And I have to believe that I don't have to, but I do believe that something is going on. And with near death experiences and nurses who like work with dying people, I've heard stories where I'm like, there's no way that like, this is imagined. I don't know where we go, but I don't think it's totally done. And we why would we be gifted this evolved consciousness for nothing? I don't know. Not that I believe in like a greater power or greater knowing, but I mean, come on. Our con I don't know. We we haven't driven past the general design of life and become this like specialized species of of being to like have it mean nothing, <laughs> right? There's that would make no sense. Why would we be allowed to evolve? to this state of consciousness if it didn't mean anything. So you can find comfort in that at least. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> uh, one of my best friends, her, a really good friend of hers is dying. And she, she was like, she told him, um, she was like, you know, I'm giving you full permission to haunt me as a ghost. <laughs> and I think that's a, like, you know, I love the idea of being like, come back. Like, I'm inviting you back, and I hope that you come. Sure, and I like to have a little saying between, like, my partner and my mom, and I say, if I die and I'm able to come back and communicate, this is what I'm going to say. Because I saw somewhere on some video this girl and her boyfriend did the same thing, and she was, like, out in public when a stranger came up to her and said, I just have to tell you, like, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, oh, that's just Jeff. He's just telling me that he's safe on the other side. And the pers other person's like, what? <laughs> like, what did I, what was I just a part of that I have no idea? 
So I, I mean, there's so many instances that it cannot just be random. There's so many things and so many connective, like the web is so connected that there's something there has to be. And I know too many, uh, really logical people who have had ghost things to be like, you wouldn't be making this up. Yeah. Especially when doctors have near death experiences or like scientists or people that are absolutely atheist or unbelieving of that. And then they have these experiences and they totally change their beliefs or their thoughts on it. You know, uh, yeah, I'm just hoping that that it just we continue to learn more. And I think that would be awesome. I want to come so. back and, and haunt in a fun way. <laughs> oh, I, where me, are we going to meet? Because I'm coming un, to. <laughs> unrested. I don't want to be restless. You want to be like the fun the fun ghost that like bakes banana bread. And when the family wakes up, they're like, oh, that's just Iris <laughs> made us bread. <laughs> I love it. Well, Iris, our final question is here, and it does not have to be related to um, the book or anything about death. It is just your favorite quote, your go-to mantra, or just a piece of advice you'd like to leave the listener off with. I was just talking about this, but I really feel like my, you know, North Star, whatever, is I am just trying to find joy. You know, like, I don't prioritize work don't tell my publishers, but I just, I, I spend like my priority in life is my friendships and my people that I love. And to me, I'm like, that's the point. And when I'm feeling whatever bad feelings, which is often, I'm like, no, go like, go find joy and spend your time doing that. And at the end of my life, I'm going to be like, I'm really glad that that's how I spent it. And I hope for other people that they can do that in a fulfilling way, even though I know it's not always possible, but you can find it in small ways. Absolutely. There's always joy, even if it's a pen, a little, a little tiny penny on the sidewalk. There's always places to find joy. Even people in like that are incarcerated for life, they oftentimes say they're, they have more joy living that way than they did on the outside so if somebody in that situation can find joy you know even though we are very privileged and and maybe we can't conceptualize that but I think joy can be found and just same with happiness and learning that happiness unfortunately has to come from within you have to choose to want to be it and to try to find it and yes there are many challenges but I think what you're saying was really helpful to me because there's times where I get stuck in those thoughts and I don't always think well, what can I do to find joy to get away from these thoughts? Because at the end of my life, it's either going to be filled with the perseveration of death or the joy to not think about it. And at the end of the day, at the end of my life, I would much rather it be I found joy in all of that, all of it, than I perseverated on the scary. And this is also definitely not saying that I'm always doing that because I got I have problems, but I try and I try to encourage other people to do that well I think it will help me because there's a lot of times where I get stuck in that loop and it's really hard to break out of and so if I can try to find a little light in that dark space that's really helpful well Iris if people would like to connect with you or find everything is temporary how can people reach out to you website is best Um, I'm taking a hiatus from Instagram much needed Um, my website is just my name irisgottlieb.com and you can find links to the book there, um, as well as the other books and 
contact form. So yeah, that's the best way. Uh, what are some of your other books? I saw there was one that was you posted about JLo accidentally having your book in the background of her <laughs> of, of some footage of sorts. I know. I was uh, yeah, highlight of my life to be in a JLo documentary. And by be in, I mean be on a bookshelf behind it. Maybe she didn't even know it was back there. It doesn't matter. Still counts. <laughs> <laughs> I have the book before this is called Seeing Gender, which is an overview of gender in its very basic way and also intersectionality a, a bit more uh, in depth. And I have Seeing Science, which is 75 uh, scientific concepts. Both are heavily illustrated. Um, and then a book that I wrote long ago that is not my favorite, but it's called Natural Attraction, which is about symbiotic relationships in nature. Well, I'm going to check those out because, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And I have an upcoming book. I don't even know, maybe 2024 <laughs> that I'm currently writing about trash. About trash. Oh, I can't wait. Trash is pretty much our whole world at this point. So, <laughs> Oh, it's it's uh, fun and depressing to research for oh, sure. Same with life. Fun and depressing at, all, at the same time, so. <laughs> Going from death to uh, a global <laughs> huge problem, but someone's got to do someone's it. Someone's got to do it. All right, Iris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me.